This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.20 a.m. It is the 8th of June, 2020. This is episode 247 of Bitcoin, and we seem to be getting some radio traffic. Oh, trying to clear it up. Uh, let, let me see if I can put it through a few, a few filters here. Uh, hold on. Hold on. We are deeply sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. Sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. Sorry. We're sorry. I'm deeply sorry. Sorry. I'm getting word that that is an apology from Brendan Ike, CEO of the privacy browser Brave, which is under fire for violating users' trust. Oh, joy. Robert Stevens, writing this one for Decrypt.co. The Chromium-based browser, Brave, has been profiting from redirect links to affiliate crypto companies. Oh, God. as it, Oh, man. This has been going on forever, apparently. This was, however, the story was written just yesterday. Brave, the crypto-friendly, privacy-first browser, has been earning affiliate commissions by redirecting certain search queries to crypto companies via affiliate links. Unlike the opt-in principle, by which the company abides, advertisements are optional on the browser and pay out cryptocurrency to anyone who views them. Brave never asked its 15 million monthly users about these redirects. A firestorm erupted today after Twitter user Yannick, Yannick Eckel, who goes by Cryptonator1337, noticed that when Brave's users search for Binance, the browser automatically redirected to an affiliate version of the URL, which Brave profits from. Brave had recently partnered with the crypto exchange. Binance's CEO, Zhengpeng Zhao, had also expressed support for Brave on Twitter. The squall blossomed into a full-on storm after Dimitar Denev, managing director of JRR Crypto, unearthed yet more redirect links. Digging into Brave's GitHub pages, Denev found that Brave also redirects its users to the websites of Ledger, Trezor, and Coinbase. God, Brendan Ike. CEO and co-founder of Brave immediately apologized when this breach was publicized. Quote, sorry for this mistake, he tweeted about the issue, which he added has since been fixed. Really? Has it been fixed? Well, quote, we never, we will never revise typed in domains again. I promise. I'm sad about it too, he said. Oh God. Ike has not responded to decrypts further request for elaboration in his defense, which Ike tweeted. Uh, he said that Brave is trying to build a viable business. Currently, it makes money by offering its users privacy-first ads that pay out in cryptocurrency. 
quote, but we seek skin-in-the-game affiliate revenue too, he said. To do this, Brave must bring its users to exchanges through widgets and also look for revenue deals as all major browsers do. He said that these redirects never revealed any user data to the affiliates in keeping with the privacy-first agenda of the browser. Of the Binance redirect, he said, quote, that code identifies us. It's a Binance affiliate code, one fixed value for all users. It is not identifying you. Anyway, we're removing it, end quote. Additionally, Ike argued that none of this was hidden. It's been in the source code for months. Uh huh. Critics of Ike argued that he was apologizing simply because he got caught. <laughs> Others still think that Brave has compromised its integrity. Quote, you made the mistake. This is probably the biggest reason why everyone chose Brave over others, tweeted the pseudonymous Crypto.Buy. Quote, we are not depending for our survival on any affiliate revenue share, Ike told Decrypt, but the money can't hurt and our users want Brave to live, he said. Okay, so there you go. That's that's the end of that uh, story, but I guarantee you that is not the end of this. Uh, that was honestly... And I'm a Brave user. I'm still using Brave right now. Of course, I, I don't actually use it to go to Binance because I don't trade and neither should anybody else, honestly. It's bad, bad juju. But <clears throat> that's, a viola- that's a pretty big violation of trust. Redirect uh, without the user's knowledge. And it's just, you know, he's saying that that's been in there for months. I'm not so so sure, but I'll, I'll take him at his, at his word. Then why not, why not broadcast this to your users? I mean, what, what would be the problem with saying, Hey, if you want brave to live, we need to pull in a little bit more revenue. Is it okay if we do X and you know, even, even if the, the resounding people come back and say, no, it is not all right. And I do not want this hell at least at least they had the issue of being able to say, well, we, we told you we were going to do this. I mean, we, like, even if it's, you know, framed in the, in the form of a question, you can't go around violating people's trust like this. We live right now in an era that is at the, it's, I talk about edge effect where species from one ecosystem are colliding with species from another ecosystem and not in a bad way. Well, sometimes it could be in a bad way, and this is one of them. But generally speaking, what you find is where that buffer is between the two ecosystems, you end up with some really interesting things. Like there's usually a, a more life than in either ecosystem. There's more species than in either ecosystem, and there's different species that live in that buffer. We find ourselves inside that buffer right now. The ecosystem of the old financial world is starting to collide with the ecosystem of what we are all building. And we find ourselves kind of sandwiched in the middle with people like Brendan Eich, who grew up in the old system and still using the tactics of the old system in the new space is causing some, some negative issues. And as well, it should. Because if we bring the old system into the new system, then we haven't really built anything. We've just changed the way the ecosystem of the old world works. I'm not in this to have the old system. I'm in this for something new, for something that benefits humanity. All right. And people like Brendan Ike honestly are fucking that up. 
Stop it. Honestly, do. And here's another one. The virtue signaling that is going on in <clears throat> the crypto space is reflection of the old world. This need for a company that has absolutely nothing to do with the virus, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, anything. They're just, it, it's an exchange. And yet here we have Brian Armstrong tweeting out on the 4th of June, keep that date in mind, the 4th of June, he says, I want to unequivocally say that Black Lives Matter. And then he goes on this huge rant, uh, how many tweet? and I'm not gonna read this because it's Brian Armstrong and almost everything that this person has to say, just, I don't need to hear it. Because Coinbase is a terrible company and they've, they've made their fortune on the back of Bitcoin and then they, at every turn, they have shit all over Bitcoin to go into a shitcoin casino, to try to destroy the system of Bitcoin. I mean, you name it, man, they've, they've done it. Um, so here we have this idiot standing up to the plate for no apparent reason, because again, not your wheelhouse, and says this, and then 24 hours later, we have Larry Cermak, also known as at Lawmaster on Twitter, on the 5th of June, say scoop, based on public records, it appears that Coinbase is in the process of selling blockchain analysis services to the IRS and DEA. A year after acquiring Neutrino, led by former leaders of an Italian spyware vendor hacking team. He goes on. I don't exactly understand why this would be worth it for Coinbase since they are already making tens of millions a year. Just from the trading fees, there is a clear conflict of interest since Coinbase has access to all the customers' KYC documents, unlike someone like Chainalysis. It is surprising they are going after the government's money for investigations rather than after exchange compliance. This could mean they are doing it for law enforcement relationships, but I'm not sure it will be worth it given that customers won't be happy about that. And then almost immediately, he links to this or he retweets this whale alert where 6,000 BTC was transferred from Coinbase to unknown wallet. Now that's what you get, man. That, 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 that's, that's exactly what you get is just this giant, was it Ross Perot? I think called it a giant sucking sound. And that's what coin, hopefully that's what Coinbase is, will just die. But I guarantee you they will not die. I don't know. Again, Bringing this, this old world bullshit into something that could be new is not going to end well. It just isn't. And again, please stop it. But for a little bit more context into the Coinbase story, let's turn to Coindesk.com. I believe that's their own affiliate news outlet. So let's see what these dudes have to say. Danny Nelson is writing this one on June the 5th. Coinbase offers U.S. Fed's new crypto surveillance tools. The behemoth cryptocurrency exchange has initiated procurement deals with the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Internal Revenue Service for a cryptocurrency investigations tool called Coinbase Analytics. According to publicly available documents, the block first reported on the prospective deals on Friday. Coinbase Analytics has close ties with Coinbase's entire product ecosystem as its senior partner, uh, senior product manager collaborates with Coinbase Consumer, Coinbase Pro, and Coinbase Custody as well as Coinbase's payment and crypto division, according to an undated but now closed job posting. 
In an emailed statement, Coinbase said its analytics product does not and has never used any internal customer data. Bullshit. Quote, Coinbase analytics data is fully sourced from online publicly available data and does not include any personally identifiable information for anyone, regardless of whether or not they use Coinbase. Wow. A spokesperson told Coindesk. Coinbase joins a crowded field of cryptocurrency analytics company, Chainalysis, Ecliptic, CypherTrace, and others vying for a piece of the federal pie. Agencies from all corners of the United States government regularly contract with crypto intel firms, inking deals for their tracing software worth worth millions and sometimes stretching years. Apparently, Coinbase, who bought blockchain intelligence firm Neutrino in February of 2019, is about to undercut the competition. Quote, this is the least expensive tool on the market and has the most features for the money, read a DEA May notice. So heavily redacted that those features specifics are unclear, but they are unique as the IRS notice published in April notes Coinbase analytics has quote, enhanced law enforcement, sensitive capabilities that are not currently found in other tools on the market. End quote. Coinbase confirmed that it developed the analytics product from Neutrino. It further stated that analytics is available for financial institutions and law enforcement agencies like, and is used in internal investigations quote, it's an important tool to meet our regulatory requirements and protect our customers' funds, Coinbase said. The DEA's interest appears to stem in part from Coinbase Analytics' pinpoint accuracy. It has, quote, some of the most conservative heuristics used in commercial blockchain tracing tools, a critical distinction in avoiding false positives, the DEA notice read. Neither the DEA nor the IRS disclose the bottom line value of their prospective deals, which federal contract websites indicate have not been finalized yet. Both agencies seek year-long contracts with Coinbase, and the DEA deal is not more than $250,000 U.S. The IRS has recently began, begun ramping up its activities in the cryptocurrency space, sending tax firms notices last month requesting proposals for auditing support. Okay, so there you go. That's pretty fair. Uh, estimation of what's going on. Again, Brian Armstrong uh, is driving. It's just has, it's almost as if there's no way you can get the guy to stay in the damn wheelhouse. And this, this excuse of, well, it's for our, it's for our regulatory compliance. Bullshit. No, it's not. No, it's not. Your regulatory compliance will never end up with a situation where you get money from the regulators themselves for providing them a service. That's not part of compliance. That has nothing to do with compliance. And this other bullshit statement that says something like, uh, Coinbase said its analytics product does not and has never used any internal customer data. Well, then the damn story goes on to say that the DEA or the IRS, I can't remember which one it was, the heavily redacted uh, notice, I believe it's the the DEA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. has the it, it basically states that it has things that they can't get anywhere else from any other service. Well, if that's true, and all these companies, let, let's say, let's, let's take it this way. Let's say all these companies have to use the same thing that that statement said, where uh, does not and never use any internal customer data and has to go outside to publicly available data. Well, if it's publicly available, then why does the DEA 
or the IRS need to pay you somewhere around the you know neighborhood of a quarter million dollars for a contract to get the same information if it's publicly available. This is bullshit. This is bullshit. Brian Armstrong is bringing the old world into the new world and you just need to avoid him and his companies at all costs, honestly. So just guys be aware. Now, here we go. Bitcoin poised to grow as U.S. economy projected to shrink, says a report. U.S. GDP is projected to shrink by 3% come 2030, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Meanwhile, Bitcoin is on track to match U.S. equities trading by 2024, says CoinMetrics. This is Colin Harper writing for Decrypt.co. This was on June the 2nd, so it's a little older, but, you know, we'll, we'll go with it. Two reports released today. Tell the tale of two very disparate markets, Bitcoin and the United States economy, and how drastically their paths may diverge as we emerge from the fog of financial uncertainty that has clouded 2020. According to the New York Times, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that the United States gross domestic product uh, will suffer a 16 trillion dollar blow sell, sell, sell. in the decade ahead as a result of COVID-19 and related economic and financial fallout. After inflation, the final tally comes out to $7.9 trillion, which would dock three percentage points off of the United States total GDP from now until 2030. My heavens, dude. The report cast a daunting shadow over the United States during an already dark period. Oh, those were dark times, Harry, dark times. Last weekend, riots rocked major cities nationwide in response to the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The riots erupted after nearly three months of national pandemic restrictions that have resulted in surging unemployment and economic instability. Meanwhile, Bitcoin analytics company CoinMetrics released its latest state of the network today with a more uplifting forecast for crypto markets anyway. If Bitcoin continues to grow at the pace it's set, over the past decade, the daily volume will match U.S. equities trading by 2024 and United States bond trading by 2025. With Bitcoin's daily spot volume in the ballpark of $4.1 billion and $8 billion at its peak in 2017, then it won't take that much longer for Bitcoin to reach equities and bond trading levels, CoinMetrics wrote in its report, or around $1 trillion in daily volume. Quote, if historical growth rates can be maintained, However, Bitcoin's current daily value from spot markets of $4.3 billion would need fewer than four years of growth to exceed daily volume of all U.S. equities. Fewer than five years of growth are needed to exceed daily volume of all U.S. bonds, end quote. So, even if U.S. GDP shows signs of slipping, there's plenty of room for growth in Bitcoin's burgeoning market, according to CoinMetrics. Maybe that digital gold meme isn't so far-fetched after all. Uh, that's the end of that one. So, I mean, could you imagine? Could you, I mean, could you imagine the trade volume matching equities in like, uh, that would be three and a half years from now. Let's say, let's get, say four years, just like 2024, let's say June, 2024. It, dude, could you imagine? And then the bond trading, that's actually, I don't know if that's actually not more important considering that's apparently how the Fed makes all their money. As a central bank, we have the ability to create money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, it's just kind of sickening. This is good news. 
Michael Kapilikov is writing for Cointelegraph sometime, uh, this would have been yesterday, almost one third of the entire Bitcoin supply is secured with a feature that gained adoption after the Mt. Gox heist. So it appears that 6 million Bitcoin are secured by multisig. Isn't that cool? Almost 6 million Bitcoin are secured in multisig wallets, nearly one third of the total supply. Bitcoin is generally secured with a combination of public and private key. In order to transact on the Bitcoin network, a user needs to sign each transaction with their private key. This works fine in most use cases, but there are situations where the setup is not ideal. For example, let's say the founder of a crypto exchange secures all of the firm's assets with their private key. This may lead to several problematic situations. What happens if a founder suddenly dies? You remember that one, right? (laughs) gets hacked or decides to engage in an exit scam. In all of those situations, the exchange would go belly up and users would lose their funds. In order to alleviate these issues, a soft fork was introduced in 2012 that enabled the use of multi-sig wallets. Bitcoins could now be secured with multiple signatures where X out of N signatures would be required to spend it. This means that wallets can now be controlled by multiple users without any one user having the ability to spend the coins on their own. The same exchange founder could secure all the deposits with five signatures and require at least three signatures for a transaction. These five signatures could belong to the various company executives. They could even delegate one or more of the signatures to a trusted third party. We observe that mass adoption of this feature only began in 2015. There is a simple explanation for this, Mt. Gox. After the notorious hack, the community realized that a decentralized system should not rely on a single point of failure. As most individual holders still do not use this feature, the number of Bitcoin stored in multi-signature wallets could also be used as a good indicator of what proportion of Bitcoin is held by businesses. Okay, that's the end of that. But, it's, you know, it could be an indicator, but it could also be an indicator of just how savvy newer uh, Bitcoin users are becoming. Okay, there's, I mean, there's no way to tell the difference, honestly, thank God. But yeah, uh, I think that this is good because you got one third of the supply of Bitcoin being held by multiple parties, well, being held by multiple parties insofar that they all have to kind of, or most of them have to agree as to if and when and where Bitcoin is going to go. Now, the problem still remains, okay, so I've got, I'm opening up an exchange and I have four of five signature uh, multi-sig wallet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep one and then I'm going to give my best friend who is, oh, my COO one and maybe my other friend, uh, maybe he was the best man at my wedding, a CTO is of the company. And then, I don't know, some, some guy that uh, doesn't speak English at all or something like that, that, and he doesn't even know he really holds the key. We, we hold it for him. You can still exit scan, right? So the, honestly, there has to be a way where the user that put the funds on the exchange has the final say as to where those things go. Somehow or another, that SIG is required, is absolutely required for any funds to be moved by the other people. Uh, like if I'm getting on the exchange and I want to trade that, you know, that that's fine. But if they're going to do something like, I don't know, send it to another exchange and liquidate the whole damn thing, they can't do it, or at least they can't do it with my funds without my key. I think that that's going to be really important going forward. But 
in either event, let's do a little bit of uh, vital statistics. Simply flooded the system with money. Yes, we did. That's another way to think about it. We did. Yep, they did. Let's look at major indices, though, with all the crap going on. I suspect that the major indices would be, oh my God, they're not down. Of course they're up. Of course, because everything is busted. Everything's broke. With all the shit going on, we got the S&P up a third, got the NASDAQ only up like, I don't know, a tenth. Dow Jones is up almost a percent. Nikkei's up one and a half percent and volatility has increased. Now, tenure or the all the bonds are basically down except the United States three month, which gained... I, five thousandths of a point or something like that. Um, so that's not looking good. Oil took another dump, man. Three and a third percent change to the downside. It's at 38 and a quarter. Natural gas is up a little bit. It's at 1.79. Uh, I guess that I'm, I'm thinking like a buck 79 per milli or a thousand cubic feet. Gold is having a decent day. It's up a percent, but it's not kill. It's not still above 1700. Seven, remember, 1700 was where gold was 12 years ago. Just think of that meme with Peter Schiff. So let's get off of that and talk about, I don't know, actual money. Bitcoin is at $9,714. Our high looks like it's going to be over there at, oh, I don't know. It looks like it's going to be bit asset. Wow, 9,794 bucks and our low is going to be over at GDAX at 9,692. We have 282,000 transactions made in the last 24 hours, which is right around 12,000 transactions on average per hour, with 626,000 BTC being sent around that horn in the last 24 hours, with an average being sent per hour of 26,000 BTC. Average transaction value is 2.2 BTC. Median transaction value is 0.027 BTC. About 260 bucks, which is kind of getting down back to the normal I'm used to. I, I usually peg it when I see 300 bucks as a median transaction value. I'm kind of in the zone. I don't know why it's a gut feeling, but block times are low. Nine minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, we've had a quarter of a BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis with 33.89 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We've had a 17% drop in hash rate in 24 hours and yet still at 108 exahashes per second. My God. And the last time somebody did nothing on Bitcoin's uh, repository for GitHub was sometime today. Ethereum at 243, Bcash at 253, BSV at 191, Litecoin at 46 and a quarter, Ethereum Classic at six and three quarters, and Dogecoin. 0.0026, so it's holding it strong. And oh my, my lord, 42,500 transactions were made, conducted on the Doge network in the last 24 hours, which puts it ahead of Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, and uh, Bcash. Oh, wow. Man, that's... <laughs> I love Doge. How could you not love the Doge? Let's see what my note has to say about... Uh, network mining 
Yeah, I'm showing for the day average is 103.5 exahashes per second, but the week was 113 exahashes per second on average. We have about 14,000 pending transactions in Mempool. So let's see what Clark Moody's has to say about some things. This is bitcoin.clarkmoody.com forward slash dashboard, otherwise known as Clark Moody Bitcoin. Now, Clark Moody is showing the mempool that he's drawn from as having the same 14,000 transactions. That represents 21.95 megabytes in size. So we're looking at clearing, we need to clear 22 blocks to get that all the way back to zero. So there you go. Uh, anything else? Oh yeah, we use this for lightning. Total capacity is 926 and a quarter BTC giving us $8.97 million in liquidity, over 7,195 nodes, representing 36 and 50 channels, 36,050 channels. Tor capacity is 417.07 BTC. That's 45% of the entire network is in Tor. That's good. That's real good. We have a couple of more Tor nodes added to the network from last time. We have 2,077 nodes in the Tor network. That's going to do it for vitals. All right, here is the second part of the morning roundup, otherwise known as the snooze you can use. We have this one from Matthew DeSalvo. This was written yesterday. Headline is a Pentagon war game shows Gen Z using Bitcoin to fight the system. Brian Adams, what do you have to say about that? The Pentagon has reportedly created a war game that plays out a scenario where disenfranchised members of Generation Z rebel against the state, steal funds from corporations, and then convert their ill-gotten gains into Bitcoin. <laughs> I think they're getting they may be getting a little bit more scared than we think that they are. And remember, an animal backed into a corner, no matter how small or pathetic, is a dangerous son of a bitch. So we need to be real freaking careful here, y'all. The 2018 Joint Land, Air, and Sea Strategic Special Program, or JLAS, imagines frustrated youths who launch a zebellion in the United States in the 2020s, according to a Friday report by The Intercept. JLAS, a series of military exercises, was used by members of the United States military's war colleges to train for likely future scenarios. So let me stop right there. The United States military's war colleges simulated this. They didn't simulate a Russian attack. They didn't simulate the Chinese sending a flotilla of their armament over the, you know, the Pacific to attack. No. What they're simulating is the citizenry of the United States going into full-blown revolt. If you think that that's not important to note, then I don't really know what else to say. You got the war colleges simulating war against the, our own citizenry. What the hell's going on? But let's read further. Documents published by The Intercept reveal the war game scenario involves Generation Z fighting against the system due to a feeling of unsettlement and insecurity, in part caused by the September 11th terrorist attacks, the Great Recession, and a lack of opportunities. 
Starting with rallies and protests in major U.S. cities, the report details how the rebellion gradually turns into a global cyber campaign to expose injustice and corruption, according to the documents obtained by The Intercept. Those involved in the rebellion are trained to use malware to steal money from corporations, banks, or any other institutions Generation Z doesn't like. The funds are then converted into Bitcoin and distributed to those who need it in order to combat income inequality, according to the war game. Despite the Zebellion making up just a small part of the game, it is intended to reflect a plausible depiction of major trends and influences in the world's regions, documents obtained by the Intercept reveals. And although the war game also features scenarios involving Islamist African militants and ISIS successors, the Zebellion scenario comes at a time of political and economic instability in the United States this week. The Drumpf threatened to send in an army to quash protesters, largely made up of young people, that have quickly spread around the globe following the death of African-American George Floyd. You can just say American George Floyd. It's okay. He, George Floyd was an American. And he was born here. He's got a social security number. I mean, he's a de- he was a debt slave like the rest of us. So yeah, American. Though the foreboding war game may offer a glimpse into the near future, current events indicate that Bitcoin may be used to power protests much sooner. I don't know, man. This is like, this is raising the freaking hackles on the back of, on the back of my neck big time. This is, not the kind of, this is not the kind of thing you want to see from the Pentagon, where one of their first, first things to worry about is the people at home and then start worrying about the rest of the world. No, you need to start worrying about the rest of the world and then start worrying about the people at home but honestly, a standing army on American soil for use against the United States citizenry was never part of the Constitution. And if you think it was, you need to go read the thing. Please, I'm begging you, if you think that a standing army on United States soil was ever part of the plan, you really need to read the Constitution because it's not. It's not. $140 billion at stake for Hong Kong tycoons backing security law. Okay, this headline could also be read as the uh, the initial the looting of Hong Kong has begun. That's how you really should read this. This is Venus Fang and Blank Schmidt writing this one on the sixth of June for Bloomberg.com. After twelve months of political turmoil, a pandemic, and the worst recession on record, Hong Kong's richest people have emerged with their fortunes intact. Now, the billionaire class of real estate developers, taipans, and conglomerate founders who dominate Hong Kong's economy are lining up to support a controversial national security law siding with the Chinese government despite widespread opposition from local residents and Western leaders. Let's stop right there and get our bearings. The people that benefited the most from Hong Kong being a completely democratic society for a hundred years, have now all decided to bend down and kiss the feet of the Communist Chinese Party. That's what's going on here. And they're going to do it, I guarantee you, to make sure that their wealth is preserved first until they can figure out how to get, rid- how to get it somewhere safe. Because the Communist Chinese Party, they'll, they'll accept the kisses on their feet and then they will kick you in the face. The richest people with companies listed in the city <clears throat> have endorsed the bill either personally, as was the case with Li Ka-shing and Michael Kadori, or through one of their businesses or relatives. Their fortunes are worth a combined $140 billion, 
quote, business leaders in Hong Kong have no choice if they do not relocate themselves and their businesses, said Steve Sang, director of the China Institute of SOAS University of London. Quote, the passing of the decision on the national security law is a clear warning to them, and if they do not publicly support it, they know they risk being seen as opposing it. End quote. A developer association representing firms including Li Shu Ki's Henderson Land Development Company and the Kwok's family's son, Hyung Kai Properties Limited, man, that's a mouthful, said it backs the law because it will guarantee stability and prosperity. Really? Prosperity? The families behind Swire Pacific Ltd, Galaxy Entertainment Group Ltd, and Jardin Matheson Holdings Limited have issued similar endorsements. Critics have argued that Beijing's plan to impose a security bill by sidestepping Hong Kong's legislature will mark the end of the one country, two systems principle that has underpinned the city's status as a global financial hub. One of the law's staunchest opponents is media tycoon, ty, sorry, tycoon Jimmy Lai, or Lei, who has called out his fellow moguls for kowtowing to Beijing. Lai was arrested along with others earlier this year as part of a crackdown on pro-democracy figures who supported demonstration, demonstrations that began last June. <laughs> While those protests kicked off one of the most turbulent 12 months in Hong Kong's history, the collective fortunes of the city's riches haven't suffered. Since the unrest started, their net worth has actually climbed 0.7%, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. That compares with the slide of about 8% in the benchmark Hang Seng Index over the same period. The gauge closed little <clears throat> changed on Monday. That's a beefy sentence. Okay, sorry about that, guys. That's, that's a little weird. Um, no, there, here, here's what I really think is going to happen. We're going to see a phenomenal outflow of wealth from Hong Kong. I think these guys are not idiots. I think what's going to end up happening is that they're going to look for a way out any way they can, but until they can, and I'm kind of surprised that they haven't already had the plans in the bags, uh, they're going to kiss the feet of the Communist Chinese Party until they can figure out how to get out. Because their prosperity is not going to happen anymore. <laughs> China's getting really, really mean. And the last thing that we need is for China to be exporting any of their control methodologies over to, well, anywhere else in the world, much less the United States. So I, I think, I really do, I think this is sort of like a bait and switch. We'll kiss your feet now, but we are going to get out. That You can hold my feet to the fire on it, I suppose, but I'm just saying, I, I just, I don't see how these guys stay in Hong Kong or move to China. I, I, I really think they're going to figure out a way to get their wealth offshore. So Bitcoin's average transaction fees fall by 83% from post having high Maha fees. The average cost of a single Bitcoin transaction has plummeted from high levels that followed the Bitcoin halvening. This was written yesterday by Robert Stevens for decrypt.co. Bitcoin's average transaction fees have hit their lowest levels since April the 28th. The average cost of sending a Bitcoin transaction is now just $1.08, according to data from BitInfo charts. A little over two weeks ago, on May the 20th, the average cost of a Bitcoin transaction was $6.64. That was the highest average fee in almost two years. They haven't been that high since July 2018. 
That means that since May the 20th, the average Bitcoin transaction fee has fallen by 3.7%. The spike in transaction fees toward the end of May coincided with the hype around May 11's Bitcoin halving, after which the reward for mining new Bitcoin cut in half. This piece of monetary policy hard-coded into Bitcoin's protocol effectively also cut mining revenues in two, meaning that miners had to work twice as hard to get their Bitcoin rewards. Coupled with increased demand for Bitcoin, trading spiked due to the halving hype because some people believe that the price of Bitcoin would increase after the halving, following the pattern of previous halvings, and demand for processing Bitcoin transactions shot through the roof. Uh, but as new, more powerful miners came online, evidenced by the skyrocketing hash rate on the Bitcoin network over the past couple of days, there were enough Bitcoin miners to process transactions, though over 80% lower than its May 20th level. The current average Bitcoin transaction fee is far higher than it was at just the start of the year. On January 1, it cost just an average of 28 cents to send a Bitcoin transaction. That means that today's figure is still a 277% increase compared to January 1. But if the current downtrend or downward trend continues, the average transaction fee could return to the levels at the start of the year. Indeed, just two weeks before transaction fees last rose to today's levels, on April the 12th, the average transaction fee was 39 cents. So that's the end of the article. But I'm getting a little bored with two things here. One is this 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 notion that the Bitcoin price would would increase after the halving following the pattern of previous halvings. Well, if you actually look at what the price was doing on all the halvings, it took a while. I mean, it didn't happen immediately. In fact, if I remember right, the last halving, we were kind of stale for a few months. And then we started getting the bull run that terminated in 2017. So if, if you're going to say statements like this, you really need to make a deep dive into what actually happened during the halvings and versus the price and see exactly the having day and then look right past that and then figure out when the arm of that of the graph started to curve upwards and then look at the date it is not the day after the having it's not 2 weeks after the having it ain't 5 weeks after the having it takes a while the the impatience with this crew is amazing i swear not you guys i'm sure you guys are fine but the rest of the world, they want everything out of the box and they want it to be a billion dollars tomorrow. Then that's just not going to happen. It's just, that's just stupid. Okay. Stop it. Also, fees. Oh my God. It costs 40 cents to send a Bitcoin transaction. So that means my cup of coffee adds another 40 cents to it. Stop buying little things with Bitcoin because that same fee could send a half a billion dollars around the world. It could send, I don't know, like hundreds of millions of dollars and you'd still be paying under a buck. Try doing that with gold. Try it because you will not be able to do that with gold. Right? So when people talk about fees, they're talking about fees versus bullshit purchases. They're not talking about fees versus massive transfers of wealth that take no security guards, no trusted third parties, nothing, nothing, right? So which one would you rather have? 
if you're going to, if you just have to use Bitcoin for coffee and we will, then Lightning Network is the way to go so that at least the vendor can stack sats for a full month and look at it and say, you know, there's, eh, there's like a, enough money in here that 40 cents isn't going to make me a hill of beans. Even if it was six bucks, it would, it would be enough money where it's like, let's go ahead and close the channel and settle out with everybody. And then I'll send the big, you know, the Bitcoin will go to my wallet and, and we're done. Instead of like, I need to use the Bitcoin, instead of thinking that you need to use the Bitcoin network, the actual settlement layer part, the core part for something like a Snickers bar, stop it, just stop. That's, I, I was unfortunate that the paper was named peer-to-peer digital cash. I, because it's been twisted and, and harangued for so long that it doesn't make any sense anymore. But be that as it may, let's move on. Let's move on. Yesterday, Ethereum miners received 60% more fees than Bitcoin miners. Oh my God. Apparently, uh, they're, they're, uh, fee problems? No, say it ain't so. Nick Chong, writing for Bitcoinist.com sometime yesterday. Ethereum transaction fees have continued to spike as demand for smart contracts and ETH transfers have spiked. It has reached a point where yesterday, June the 6th, Ethereum miners brought in more transaction fees in aggregate than Bitcoin miners for the first time in months. Blockchain analytics startup Glassnode made this observation, sharing the chart below on June the 7th. Quote, daily Ethereum network fees surpassed Bitcoin fees yesterday. $498,000 versus $308,000 so far. This has only happened on 141 days or 8% of the time. Glassnode wrote in a reference to the data that can be seen below, and then they give a chart, which I'm not going to describe the chart. There are a few reasons for the high transaction fees. One, the demand to send ETH between exchanges has increased as volatility has hit cryptocurrencies. Two, Ethereum-based Ponzi schemes are gaining popularity again. And three, stablecoins have continued to see mass adoption by crypto traders. <laughs> yeah, they have. Analysts say that this trend of rapidly increasing transaction fees, MHA fees, has a number of implications for Ethereum of both the positive and negative varieties. Oh, you don't say. Analysts say that the increasing usage of the Ethereum network is a positive catalyst for the price of Ethereum. The founder of Mythos Capital, Ryan Sean Adams, recently noted that his analysis has found that the price of ETH has been closely correlated with the transaction fees Ethereum users pay over the past four years. If the historical relationship holds, ETH is poised to rally dozens of a percent. Sorry, dozens of percent. A chart from Adams shows, while ostensibly bullish for Ethereum prices and the narrative surrounding blockchain, high fees do have clear drawbacks. According to Bitcoinist research, if one wants to interact with certain decentralized finance contracts, such as MakerDAO and Uniswap, transactions can cost upwards of a buck. With some operations, fees can quickly rack up to a handful of dollars, especially if you want the transaction processed quickly. This means that if you are a user attempting to trade or spend small amounts of ETH on DeFi contracts, you will spend a relatively large chunk of your holdings on fees alone. Hence, there's been a push for scaling solutions. As reported by Bitcoinist previously, decentralized exchange Exchange suggested that Ethereum miners should increase the block limit... 
to accommodate more transactions every 14 second block. Currently, there is a gas limit of 10 million, though this could be increased by dozens of percent to accommodate more transactions. There are also second layer scaling solutions coming into the fray, which are attempting to enable extremely cheap, near instant and secure payments, like how the Lightning Network works with Bitcoin. Wow. There's so much wrong here. The, our attitudes are just, we're falling back into the old world. Stay in the buffer, guys. Stay in the buffer, preferably as far away from the old ecosystem as you can get. But we're not there. Here we go. Bitcoiners have already been through the scaling, the scaling shit. We've already figured it out. And now you've got, what was it? Uh, it's been a push for scaling solutions. Oh yeah. <clears throat> exchange one inch or the one inch dot exchange suggested that Ethereum miners should increase the block limit. Welcome to Bitcoin, motherfucker. We've already been here. It's not that it won't work for you guys. It's just, I, I'm not, a, as you know, I'm not a fan of Ethereum, but we've already been here. We've, we, we, Bitcoiners left this, this path a long time ago. And again, we're in the, the high fees thing. Now there's, there's something to be said about the high fees, especially considering that a lot of this stuff is used for gambling. And I'm not talking about playing cards. I'm not talking about virtual casinos. I'm talking about virtual casinos, exchanges. Gee, I'm looking at this worthless ass shit coin and maybe I can pair it with this other worthless ass shit coin and make profit. The, bro down, man. I mean, that's like, it's, you know, find under, steal underwear, question mark, profit. It, uh, clearly it works for a lot of people because they do it. But what if, what if, well, as I've always said, you're talking about a complex system. What if the high fees actually are a good uh, limiting factor of how not to get screwed? Like if it was so easy, very fast, it cost no money to just day trade shit coins all damn day. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, you're going to lose your money faster. Unless you are a master trader, all that's going to happen is that those low fees will enable you to lose your money fast. Whereas high fees make you kind of think, maybe I shouldn't scratch the itch to get into the virtual casino of Coinbase Pro. I'm just saying, and we see this in biology. In your very cells, there are there are things that say, look, I got, I have too much of this compound. That particular compound is a negative in, or is rather inhibits the, the gene that produces that very compound. It's, it, this is not, the, clearly, this is not the only way. This is just one example. But like, let's say, how to say it? Let's say I got compound X that does Y in all in my cells. And let's look at zero in on one cell. That compound, when it gets to a certain concentration in the cell, will literally inhibit the production of either the protein that manufactures or the enzyme that manufactures that particular uh, compound 
or better yet, that compound actually attaches to the DNA part that would be transcribed into the mRNA, which is then used to make the enzyme which makes the compound. It's negative feedback loop. Maybe, we're, maybe it's possible that we're looking at fees completely the wrong way. What if they're not here to hurt us? Maybe they're here to help us. And we have to look at things differently. I'm just saying, man, there's more than one way to look at a skinned cat. So just keep, keep that in mind when it comes to the whole Mahai fees uh, issue, okay? All right, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to read very much of this because this is Wall Street Journal, and I refuse to give them any money whatsoever because it's the Wall Street Journal, all right? People aren't visiting branches. Banks are wondering how many they actually need. Orla McCaffrey is writing this one yesterday. People are visiting bank branches less frequently during the coronavirus pandemic. That could speed up some banks' plans for shutting them down. Branch traffic fell more than 30% in April and the first three weeks of May compared with the same period last year, according to Novantis, a financial services research firm. Teller transactions dropped 32% in March and April compared with the same period last year, Novantis said. Okay, that, that's the part that I'm going to read from the Wall Street Journal. Now, I've, I've got two other articles that, that uh, buttress exactly what's going on that, that was just mentioned in the Wall Street Journal. This is the New Work Advocate, part of the USA Today <clears throat> network, and this was written by Kent Mallett for New Work Advocate, and this was published on June the 5th. Park National Bank to close 21 branch offices in 14 counties. So this is Newark, I'm assuming Newark, New Jersey. Uh, Park National Bank announced the closure of four branch offices in the Newark Health area, or sorry, Newark Heath area and a total of 21 branches in 13 Ohio counties. Oh, I'm wrong. It wasn't New Jersey <laughs> and one North Carolina County on September the 30th. The Licking County closures are at Eastland. And then there's a whole bunch of, they give like addresses. Park does not own any of the four sites. The Eastland, Southgate and Kroger locations have no drive through service. The bank stated it plans to keep the ATM at the Eastland location and hopes to retain an ATM in the Dugway area. It also stated it aims to continue having on-site services available in a majority of locations, closing, including the Kroger sites. The closures represent typical annual business decisions as customer usage patterns change, the bank stated. Okay. Uh, largely peaceful. Largely. Yeah, typical annual business decisions, my ass. We'll get to that here in a second. Service area overlap, lower transaction volume, customer behavior trends, and operating costs are primary reasons for most uh, financial institutions to reduce offices in the last decade, Park said. Quote, our banks continue to add new customer relationships, but more people rely on digital banking services and blah, 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 blah. Okay, so there, there you go. Now that's out of the new work advocate. Let's do this one. This is from KRCR News, an ABC affiliate. This was written by Courtney Creeder, Friday, June the 5th, Wells Fargo limiting hours, closing some branches. North State Area, California, Wells Fargo is limiting branch hours nationwide, closing some locations and switching others to drive through only. People at the Wells Fargo off Pine Street in Redding Friday morning said they went there after trying 
the Wells Fargo location on Cypress Avenue, which they said had several people waiting in line. The branch on East Cypress Avenue is open. They are following social distancing protocols and are allowing a limited number of customers in a lobby at a time. ATM drive-through is also open. The Pine Street is temporarily closed. Drive-through ATM is open. The branch at Walnut Street and Red Bluff is also open. And it goes on like this. Let's get to the bottom of this thing. Uh, Quote, it's packed over there. There's like 100 people and it's six feet of distancing, so it's packed. Now I can't get in to pay my mortgage because it's packed, one customer voiced. Bank of America has also restricted their branch hours. Most banks have offered some type of temporary relief or assistance and are working on methods of offering more assistance to those affected by the coronavirus and the economic shutdown following. Banks say their call centers are swarmed with out-of-work customers facing upcoming bills due to mortgages or credit card bills. Do you see a pattern? Okay, tinfoil hat time. Let's say the whole damn, this whole damn thing was completely manufactured because they knew that the economy was going to just evaporate. Not just the economy, like what they've done to the economy through their own actions over the past hundred years has built an economy that was never going to be stable at one point or another. They, I, I guarantee they knew that shit. Why? I don't know, man. I don't know why psychopaths do the same shit, do the shit that they do. And neither do you, unless you're a psychopath, in which case you still may not know why you do the things that you do, but be that as it may. Branch offices closing because nobody's using them. And yet this poor dude can't pay his mortgage because the branch office that is open has hundreds of people there. Okay. But if this is just a different kind of bank holiday, you know what happens during bank holidays, all kinds of chicanery goes on during bank holidays. Not maybe as much in the United States, but not, so much as as transparent as in other places like when when Greece announces a bank holiday people freak out because they know what's coming you know Italy bank holiday probably you know not not all that good i mean bank branches closing on the heels of all this makes me it just i can't help it guys it makes me put on a tin foil hat so i I don't know what else to say. Let's, you know what? Screw it. Let, let's do it. All right, so this is fucked. So I'm thinking about watching a movie. Laptop's frozen. I'm thinking that's all good. I can just watch it on TV. TV's frozen too. I'm just going to make you think about that one. It was a TikTok video. He showed a laptop and it had something on the screen. He showed the TV. It had something on the screen too. I kind of ponder that for a little bit. Make it a, a different kind of terrible joke corner. Okay. So <laughs> I was going to put up a train wreck, but honestly, there was no better train wreck than uh, <laughs> the two dual stories of Brian Armstrong and the story about uh, the Brave Browser. God, just, God, the absolute chicanery that's going on in this space. Uh, you know, 
find reputable, reputable, good Bitcoin companies to stick with. If you see companies that are shitcoining, starting shitcoin casinos, launching their own damn token, doing stupid things, then they're not really for, they're not really for Bitcoin. Okay. Um, and then they get into shit like this. And this is just going to get worse. It's just, it's just going to get worse. Although I really do believe that uh, things, other things will get better. I believe that more and more honest to God, good ethical Bitcoin company or Bitcoin only companies are going to be added to the mix. And that's what we need. We need, we need people to set, step up to the plate and be ethical, not be a shithead, like just always a damn shithead, but ethical. Either event, okay, uh, be careful. Be very careful who you do business with. We are, it's not only that we're early to the price, because I really do believe that the price is going to increase. And I think if, if you hold, I think you're going to be well, well, uh, very well rewarded. But during this time, we also have to look out for the fact that because we are early, there is just scam after scam after scam after scam. And it is no different in my mind than the scam companies and scammy people that were looting the shit out of people coming west for the gold rush. I guarantee it, same shit happened. Selling you crappy hammers, crappy saws, crappy shovels, crappy everything, except there was there were some good companies that were like, no, we're not going to make our shovel handles out of some weak-ass, you know, juniper wood. We're going to make it out of hickory so that it lasts. That's ethical. Brian Armstrong, Brendan Ike, you know, as much as I used to like Brendan Ike after this, you know, he, he showed his ass. That's all I got to say about that. Listen, guys, I'm closing in on episode 250. It's going to happen sometime next week or next Monday, depending on how this week goes. So um, I have nothing special planned. You know, honestly, I was thinking about doing my very first giveaway, but <clears throat> I don't think that's what people want. I really don't. And honestly, if I can't grow this thing without doing gimmicky shit, then it probably doesn't need to be grown. With that, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.